Welcome to our last Tuesday of the month book discussion and podcast. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. May's read is Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion by Gia Tolentino. I'm Amy and joining me today is Kelly, the Public Services Librarian at North Liberty Library. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly. I am, as Amy mentioned, the Public Services Librarian here for North Liberty Library. I am an avid reader. I am also an author of 12 romance novels under the pseudonym Eliza David. And I'm just so thrilled to be on last Tuesday of the month. And I'm so thrilled that it gave me an excuse to read something that has been on my TBR for quite a while, Trick Mirror. So I'm really ready to discuss. I really enjoyed this book. Awesome. I'm happy to hear that it was on your to be read list because I just happened upon it and I hadn't ever even heard of the author before. And then I went into like a deep dive Mm -hmm. and like read past stuff she'd written and I became really excited about it. Yeah, I love books written by women in essay format. I love essay format books like Samantha Irby is another author that writes essays. Hers are a bit more comical, but I really just love that style of writing, especially from women in their 30s and 40s who are talking about life and especially some of the topics that Gia touches on in Trick Mirror. So yeah, this was a great book for me. It's right in my alley. It's been so long since I've read a full essay book, like cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And I forgot, like you said, how much fun they are. And despite like the fact that the tone itself of most of the essays is a little more serious, it was still really a pleasure to read. And I think part of that had to do with just her writing abilities and the way that she structured everything, like the very first essay just pulled me in. The I and internet, yes. <laughs> yeah, I just found it instantly relatable, even though I think there is maybe some age difference between myself and the author. I still grew up in a very similar period where the internet was in those beginning stages like she talked about. Yeah, you- I know. I felt like, yeah, there's definitely an age difference between the two of us. Some of the things that she was talking about were things that were happening when I was in college. (laughs) But college was really the first time, or actually in my late teens, yeah, early 20s. But that was really the first time that, you know, things like MySpace and Angel Fire web pages and all those early, early bits of social media started coming in that kind of you know, touches on some of the narcissism that she refers to in the essay. And you'll find that throughout the collection, what I found was that narcissism came up a lot. Because I think particularly for her generation, and I say this because I have a 14-year-old who is, was Gen Z, Gen Z-ish population, not a millennial, but Gen Z-ish. And all of their identity can be wrapped up in social media so fast. And I didn't start getting my son on social media until he was 13 and he's going to be 15 in December. So just in this past 18 months, it has incredibly changed some of the dynamics of how he communicates with his friends. So I definitely got that from this article and from this essay about how narcissism is just a constant theme. And it really did set us up for the other essays in the collection for the tone. 
It did. And I was just super impressed with the way that she did that. And yeah, narcissism is definitely a recurring subject. And I thought it was really interesting how she linked it to feminism Mm -hmm. and women's view of themselves as individuals, but also how that is reflected in society. And it was just beautifully well done. And I kept coming back to that as we went through and talked about how that's reflected in movements as well. She talked about the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. and how hashtags, while they're useful and practical, can sometimes tie up our identities as well Mm -hmm. and make singular stories tied to a collective and how that complicates our self-image. And I just thought that was... Yeah. And she even touches on that a bit. Another essay that I liked from this collection was The Cult of the Difficult Woman, because I've been called difficult several times in my life. And I wear that with pride, but I did enjoy her insights on that. You know, as a Gen Xer, there were several insights from several essays in this collection, like the story of a generation and seven scams. I'll get back to that one later, but the cult of the difficult woman, I really enjoyed that because she really showed how celebrities can be used to be examples of feminism But at the end of the day, it's all performative. And if it's performative feminism, is it helping the cause? And I think that when we're trying to get pushed behind movements, and I've seen this also with similar movements like with BLM, when we're trying to get pushed behind a movement that's for a greater cause, we have to be careful who we tether to the movement, specifically when it comes to celebrities and public figures. So I like what she had to say about that because it kind of made me think as I was reading The Cult of the Difficult Woman, are we in a catch-22? Do we defend all women under the guise of feminism, but is it only for particular causes? So are we picking and choosing the times that we use feminism to defend one another. So that definitely made me think too. I really enjoyed that essay as well. I feel like I have to take a big deep breath because yes, tethering people to movements, like you said, very dangerous. I was also thinking about it, the way that we interact and use celebrity faces for a cause and defending all women in the name of feminism. She also kind of contradicts that statement or that idea when she talks about how there are certain women, and she used specific examples, none of which I can really remember off the top of my head for whatever reason, but I think one of them was Kellyanne Conway. Mm-hmm. So that we can't ever criticize women if we're feminist is what I think she was trying to get away from and recognizing that feminists and feminism can't be just about continually defending women all the time because they're outside of the reach of criticism. I would hold that as a truism, but I am also still muddling around in my brain what it means to look at a situation and be able to say, you know, this isn't a criticism of this person based on their gender. Right. It's based on the character. And I think that sometimes that that gets us caught up in many movements. For example, you know, we get caught up in that. Do we talk about this person and critique this person 
and can still be a feminist? And, you know, the resounding answer is yes. And I'm glad that Gia brought that up in this essay, because it's arguments like those that really confuse people as to what feminism actually is. Because a lot of people, they think they know what feminism is, but they aren't completely accurate. They may be confusing it with misandry, which is not feminism. They may be confusing it with what they would call reverse sexism, which is not feminism. Feminism to me is simply the acknowledgement that women are important, that they are more than half of the population and deserve to be heard. And so a lot of what happened, especially like with the Me Too movement, that was a prime example. And that's why I'm glad that Gia brought that up. First of all, it was completely hijacked from the person who created it, who was Tarana Burke. And once it was hijacked, it was then misused in so many different ways. One particular way it was misused was with Monica Lewinsky and the Bill Clinton scandal from 20 plus years ago. And that's just one of many examples of where how movements can get diluted. And then it causes the general public to not deem it valid. Mm-hmm. And that ends up hurting everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree with your view on feminism. And I would add in my view that it's really at its core about recognizing the role that gender has in our society and saying, Mm -hmm. no, that's not equal to Mm -hmm. base it on gender. And so that's what I would add to that for my personal view of it is that recognition and making it known that discrimination is happening because of gender and that's not okay. And I think that that's kind of where my feminist core belief is at. Absolutely. I think feminism comes up quite a bit in her essays. Another one of the essays that I liked was the last one in the collection, Ivy Dread, where she talks about how her and her partner have received like 50 wedding invitations from friends. And she's just, you know, aghast at how much of a stranglehold the wedding industry has, uh, particularly on women. And she talks a bit about that, about how she kind of refers to the wedding industry as being a tool of the patriarchy and how we're more interested in the ceremony than the actual relationship. And as someone who I had the big wedding, I'm not going to lie, I've been married for almost 17 years, but I absolutely had the big wedding. I feel like I could have used this essay (laughs) 17 years ago (laughs) to give me a little bit more perspective, to give 25-year-old me a little bit more perspective. I don't think it happens as often with this new generation. Like, My daughter's nine and she doesn't talk about getting married or having kids or anything like that. Like she's being a kid. And part of that is raising them in that way. But then we're also talking about a generation of women who were raised to think that marriage was the ultimate accomplishment. I wasn't raised that way, but a lot of women in my generation and older were raised to be that way. And that's the kind of behaviors and mindset that keeps the wedding industry, you know, a billion dollar industry. Yeah, for sure. I specifically remember points in my childhood where, for whatever reason, having kids and getting married was widely talked about. She talks about in her book that make-believe place. Mm -hmm. And I think there was definitely some of that there, but then it didn't hit me again until college where 
bunch of friends are now starting to get engaged. And so that atmosphere like rises up again. So yeah, there's definitely points in my life that I remember going and having those ideas kind of circle around me and question my own thoughts because I never thought I would ever get married personally. Mm -hmm. I just didn't picture that except for these periods of time where like it felt like I was suffocating in it. Yeah. (laughs) But I did end up getting married. It's common law marriage though. So there's been no party, no like ceremony or anything. So it's a little bit different for my relationship and my partner, but you know, maybe in the future there'll be a party, but I also thought it was interesting, her comments and research into studies that have been done for LGBTQ Mm -hmm. couples and how that relationship to marriage is different and how that focus on it's the gender roles that really have a big impact on women in particular and their roles in marriage. What I really liked about this book, because there are dozens of books by women writing essays about women but most of those essays are from a very singular lens. So I love that she included LGBTQIA community in her writing. I love that she included women of color in her writing and that she made references to that because that's kind of the trouble with the essay books sometimes is that it's told from this very singular lens. I've had that experience too many times to count. And as a Black woman, you know, it just gets frustrating after a while reading these essays about women and not being included in that scope. And that's why I love writers like, and I know we haven't gotten to the recommendations portion, but one recommendation I would give is anything by Lindy West. And that's Lindy, L-I-N-D-Y West. She has written great books, including her book Shrill, which is being turned into a television series. I think it's already been out. She is a white woman, but she talks about women in a very inclusive way. So I really appreciated that about Trick Mirror is that she really was inclusive in the topics and she was inclusive in who she talked about within the topic of each essay. And she did so while maintaining authentic voice, I think. Mm -hmm. And when an author is sharing something personal, there are obviously some edits that happen. But I think that from what I was reading, it still felt very much her. And there wasn't a whole lot of suppressing of of that voice that I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were some great essays in here. I think the one that was the most fascinating for me to read was, and I mentioned it earlier, the story of a generation in seven scams, because I definitely saw myself in one of those seven scams. (laughs) And that would be the girl boss mindset. I was hardcore into that probably for the first, well, I think I've always kind of had like a girl boss mentality, but it really got to be a thing for me in my late 20s, early 30s. Like there's a book called Girl Boss. I have that book. I have several of that author's materials as well. And what Gia had to say about the girl boss mindset was absolutely on point. It discourages rest in any way. It is all based in ego and it just reeks of inauthenticity. And she talks a great deal about how scamming and, you know, scamming is kind of like a buzzword now. I mean, it's been going on for literally centuries, but women centering themselves 
in the art of scamming and the whole girl boss mindset can be destructive for women. And I never thought I would get myself to the point where I would say that. But when she brought up the girl boss thing, that really struck a chord with me because I remember how, you know, locked into that mindset I was. And it wasn't something that served me. I think we think it serves us, but what it is really serving is your ego and not your true authentic self. So I'm glad that she brought that up as one of the seven scams. Yeah, it definitely serves a surface purpose. And I think that I've probably been through times where that girl boss mentality has come up in my life. And I think what I realized was that if I am not being authentic, even with myself, I'm kind of, you know, lying to myself and not engaging authentically, like you said, can just be damaging to us as individuals, as well as to other women in our lives and society as a whole, even. Yeah, it can be damaging because we really truly do believe, well, first of all, we live in a society where regardless of your gender, you're expected to work, 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 rest is frowned upon. And especially, you know, I know this was written pre-COVID, but now that, you know, we've all quarantined and had to work from home, everyone's itching to go out. You know, it's still that mentality about coming back to work. Like, you know, for those who have worked from home for months on end, for them to come back into a physical workplace, does that girl boss mindset ever go away? Or does it just kind of reset once you're back in the workplace? So I think back to my own girl boss moments, you know, when I was in that mindset and it didn't serve me at all. But like I said, I thought it was serving me. And I think a lot of women think that it serves them, but what it really does serve is just this figment of our ego, this imagining of what life should be like, this unreachable standard we've put ourselves up against. And we spend more time trying to reach that than to reach inside to be our most authentic selves. Mm -hmm. And talk about like building pressure and, you know, mental health and all those different ways that it can affect women and society as a whole, if we're not engaging as our full selves in society and optimizing, right? That plays into that girl (laughs) boss, right? Mm -hmm. It might've even been from the same chapter, but the whole idea of, and yeah, girl boss does feed into that a hundred percent because using Mm -hmm. your image that you've created and uplifted and circulated as a type of currency, I thought that that was a hundred percent accurate. And she just demonstrated it across all levels of society, And it's become so widely accepted and kind of expected, right? Social media, that's what you do on social media is you create a persona, even if you don't mean to, like it's kind of a second nature because Instagram's used to show those picture perfect moments, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Social media is all completely ego driven. No one's really being themselves on social media. Or like you said, they're only showing you the highlight reel of uh, what their life is like. So I like the always be optimizing chapter because there was one part that really intrigued me when she was talking about Lottie Burke. I'm a bit of a fitness buff and I practiced the Lottie Burke method when it first came out many, many years ago. I started with the VHS tapes (laughs) when I was in my early 20s when I first moved to Iowa City back in 2000, 2001. And so when she came up in this essay about always be optimizing, I was really surprised. I was like, oh, wow. So I really got sucked into the monetization of a practice of Pilates that was 
invented before World War II and how by 2010, it had become this million dollar industry. So learning that history, not only was it a history lesson for me, but it was just a reminder that, you know, the movement can be monetized. Almost anything can be monetized, but does everything have to be monetized? So yeah, I really like that essay as well. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about all the different types of exercise and gyms that I've joined and like what that looks like in that realm. Like I've done kickboxing, I've done yoga, I've done all these things that, you know, you pay to go and do, which, okay, yeah, you're working out your body and you're gaining something from it, whether that's the actual physical benefits, uh, which there are, of course, with exercise. But I'm just wondering about, you know, noticing those in a way that is helpful. How do we disengage from that? Or is it necessary that we're always disengaged from that? What about this is actually helpful or not helpful? I guess maybe that's always a self-reflection question. I think Um, so. I mean, everyone has ego and ego by definition is just that external representation. It is your identity, who you are, what you do for a living, that kind of thing. And fitness can play into that. And for me, fitness is kind of both. Like, yeah, I want to look good. And, you know, especially for this time in my life, I'm in my 40s and I'm done having kids. And I'm like, yay, I got my body back. So I want to mold and build my body into the shape that I want it to be. And so there's that part of it, but there's also the health part because, you know, I am 42. You know, I feel like I always say this to my friends who are in our forties. I say, if we're lucky, half our life is already over. And that's if you're lucky, you know? So if I'm blessed to live to 84, I know that my fitness is going to be a big part of that, that my diet is going to be a big part of that. I still struggle with my diet a little bit, but the fitness portion, I try to balance the two. Like the aesthetic, the physical look is absolutely a plus for me. That's definitely a motivator. It definitely gets me up at 530 in the morning. Absolutely. But the health benefits, having a stronger cardiovascular system, having good blood work come out every year at my annual physical, being able to play with my children, being able Mm -hmm. to have the mobility to move about in my work and personal life. You know, those are important too. So we really do have to find the balance between what serves the ego and what serves the soul, what serves our inner selves and what serves our external selves. It's really a balancing act, but that's being human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't want to answer it, that's okay. So you're a parent and you've mentioned that you have a daughter. Do you find it difficult to have conversations with her about things that may affect her specifically because she is a woman who, I don't know how your daughter identifies with her race or ethnicity, but are those conversations that you find difficult to have with her? No, not they're not difficult. I'm cultivating a relationship with my daughter. She's nine. So I always say she's kind of like in the last few years before she hates my guts when she's a teenager. (laughs) So I'm really trying to take this particular phase in her development to ensure with her that you can tell me anything if you have questions. Now, when it comes to things like body image and self-identification, sometimes she identifies as Black, sometimes she identifies as biracial. It really depends on how she's feeling that day. So we kind of just ebb and flow with that. 
when it comes to body image, you know, sometimes she'll be like, mommy, why do you exercise so much? And I do have to be careful with how I answer her because I can't answer her the way I answer my girlfriends or my mama. I have to answer her in a more responsible tone. And I tell her, you know, first and foremost, I do work out to be healthy. And, you know, she'll ask a little bit more, you know, starting to get into, you know, do you do it for your body, the body image thing, that can be a precarious conversation. But I look at every time I have a conversation with my daughter, and she kind of stumps me as a lesson for me as a parent. And it's not going to be the last lesson I learned as a parent. In fact, we're just getting started especially with a young girl who's going into adolescence and puberty and all of those things. So I try not to look at those conversations as difficult. I look at them as opportunities for me to learn to be a better parent, opportunities for me to learn how to be a better woman by communicating as authentically with my daughter as I can about those sensitive issues, because that world out there is going to tell her a completely different story. The world out there is going to tell her to doubt herself. It's Mm -hmm. going to tell her to second guess herself, not only because she's a girl, because she is a girl of color. So my job is to be that beacon, to be that port in the storm so that when she comes home and she needs the real answers, she knows that she can get those from me. Now, she may not come looking for the real answers all the time, but she (laughs) knows that I'm there to give those to her. That was a great question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I wonder because I am not a parent. When I was reading through this, I was wondering about that perspective. And if I asked my mom to read this one time, like what kind of conversation we would have about how she thought to talk to me about those issues, because I would have a very different perspective about how we had that conversation than she would. So right. that's a very, yeah. <laughs> so I might do that. I might see if my mom would read this and then we could talk about it because I think that'd be really cool. I think it's a great book for conversations with mothers and daughters. I think it's a great book to have as a book club with some girlfriends. And there are several books like it. If any of the listeners have read Untamed, by Glennon Doyle. I'm a huge Glennon Doyle fan. I loved her when she was Glennon Doyle Melton before she got divorced. (laughs) And I love her now. She is just fantastic. And Untamed will drive you to tears. Like it will make you reflect like Trick Mirror, but it also has that added emotional attachment to it where it will bring you to tears. It is a fantastic read. And another book that's kind of like Trick Mirror is On Being Human by Jennifer Pasteloff. And we have both of those books at the library. So we have those both available. But On Being Human is another great book. I hadn't heard of the author before this book. And I actually grabbed it here and read it cover to cover in like a week. And then I started following this woman all over social media. So I love it when women write essay books like this. I really enjoyed reading Trick Mirror. And I think that all women should read it across the spectrum of femininity. And really just dig into what she's talking about, because there's so many contradictions that women have to live with on a daily basis. And this book does a good job of dissecting most of them. I totally agree. And thank you for those recommendations. I would also add to that, if you liked this book, Kelly, give us some great essays. I'm also going to throw in some fiction in there, which might correspond to some of the topics that were talked about. The Performance by Claire Thomas. It's a brand new book that we have here and I think could really shed some light on some of those topics. If I Had Your Face by Francis Cha, which is just beautiful and I highly recommend. I actually read that book earlier this year and just was really moved 
And then a nonfiction option is Whose Story Is This by Rebecca Solnit. Kind of a classic. I think she's great, Rebecca Solnit. She is fantastic. Yes. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And thank you, Kelly. We will be back in June with Kayla from Norwalk Easter Public Library to discuss Slaughterhouse-Five, the graphic novel adaptation by Ryan North and Albert Montez. We hope you'll join us again.